Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 19 days from Christmas on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. And one of our members is celebrating St. Nicholas Day, and she says it's not like Sweetest Day. <laughs> I'm Chris Quinn, here with that person, Laura Johnston, as well as Layla Tassi and Lisa Garvin. So, Laura, with your Dutch background, what did you do for for this day well the kids put out their shoes and the idea is saint nicholas would come riding around on a horse and leave candy in the kids shoes but they also got advent calendars the lego advent calendars which they were probably more excited about than the skittles <laughs> um in a, in a candy cane shape yeah our grandson did the uh, lego uh, advent calendar a year ago that was a big hit so i imagine your kids will have fun every day getting up and get more excited and every always day more plastic those. packages to throw away every day <laughs> <laughs> they swear they're going to uh, a biodegradable packaging soon that it won't be the plastic anymore we'll have to see let's start what is going on with the ohio republican party did they really have to call in the law when anti-mike dewine forces disrupted a meeting scheduled to map out endorsements for 2022 lisa it seems like when a party in america gets into a supermajority, they have to have somebody to fight with so they break apart and fight with each other right right i mean they're done owning the libs so i guess they have to do some internecine fighting instead but yeah this all seems to be there seems to be a growing sentiment that they do not want the state republican party to endorse mike dewine for re-election for governor that's what it comes down to they have a meet they had a meeting on friday of the uh the Republican Central Committee. It was disrupted by hecklers who were sitting at the back of the room and they ended up having to end the meeting prematurely after repeated warnings by state uh, GOP chair Bob Paducic to, you know, calm down or we're going to throw you out. Well, they ended up uh, ending the meeting. And I guess some of the hecklers hung on afterwards. So the sheriff's deputies came in. They didn't force anybody out, but I guess their presence was enough to have the stragglers leave. But they were trying to vote on, they had five resolutions they were trying to vote on. There was a huge debate during that meeting about the $900,000 given to DeWine's reelection bid. And there were a couple of uh, resolutions that they did not get to that would have like severely curtailed any any uh, endorsement money to DeWine. And uh, I guess this group was stirred up. And this was a guy I remember saying last week during the podcast, I hadn't heard of him until we talked about him. But Mark Pukita is a Republican U.S. Senate candidate. And apparently he got on social media and egged on these groups, you know, to have them attend this meeting and disrupt it. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a whole lot of fighting like right out in the open. I'd be willing to bet that some percentage of these people were the same ones showing up at school board meetings before the election to protest about CRT. And it gets back to a theory that I've talked about on this podcast before. There's a whole bunch of people in America that feel displaced. And these kinds of things make them feel like they're a member of a club. 
right? So they show right. up, they make lots of noise. I mean, the idea that they're not going to endorse Mike DeWine is pretty ridiculous, right? He's the he's the incumbent governor. His challenger is kind of a goof. I mean, it's just strange to think that they'll they'll get to the point where he's not endorsed. But it seems like it's more about going and making noise and making a spectacle right. it was the same thing that happened at school board meeting after school board meeting. I mean, maybe the solution to all our discord in America is to come up with a good club for people to belong to, one that helps our fellow human beings and is all benevolent and such. Well, and, and apparently these audience members showed up because they were afraid the committee was going to vote to endorse Mike DeWine. So, uh, you know, but here, w- what's the alternative? Right now we have Jim Renacci and his, uh, you know, Christian movie producer, Lieutenant Governor running mate. And then Jim Clyburn, isn't he the other GOP candidate for, for governor? Yeah, I, I wonder if this will spur more people to jump into the race now. Oh, I think it's almost too late. You're literally six months from the primary, and it's a very expensive thing to do. And and I wonder, is it really about Mike DeWine, or is it more about making lots of noise and getting attention, which worked, because we're talking about it, we covered it, others covered it, it was a wholesale breakdown. I mean, they could not complete their agenda. They wanted to do some things, and they just gave up, like school boards did last year. We talked about how Lakewood just gave up on its agenda one night when a bunch of people from outside Lakewood came in to scream and yell and make lots of noise. Can can I just jump in and say that when that was happening, remember the Republicans all said, they're just concerned members of the community. (laughs) There's no need to involve law enforcement in in dealing with that contingent. But then they show up at the uh, (laughs) Republicans meeting and call in the law. Get these get these guys out of here. Yeah, it's it's fascinating that it almost always happens. Once you become so overwhelmingly in power, you fracture and break apart. The Democrats are doing the same thing in in Washington. They've got this slim majority, but they're fighting with each other and getting very little done. Be interesting to see if they have another meeting, whether they just have lots of law there to begin with to stop the interlopers. I you know, this we talked last week. Some of these people also want the Republican Party to open its books and show they spent money, which seems like a reasonable request. You are listening to Today in Ohio. What happened in a meeting intended to build consensus behind a rushed plan by Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson and City Council to use a whopping $12 million in city funds to bail out the failing Shaker Square? Layla, we were talking before we started recording that there's a panic today. Jay Westbrook is helping organize a four o'clock rally to get this thing rammed through today Mm. in spite of the councilwoman who represents the area saying it's going too quick and she doesn't know the details. Mm -hmm. What happened Friday and what is behind the panic to get this passed? What are they afraid of if they wait a month? Well, that councilwoman, Marion Anita Gardner, who is in her final weeks uh, of representation of that ward where Shaker Square is located, she made it really clear at that meeting Friday that she does not support the plan and had asked council to to not consider this legislation at today's meeting. And she says she has she was never briefed or consulted until this legislation was basically drafted. So she hasn't had time to consider whether this is a good deal for the city or the community. And council leadership has said that they won't move forward without her blessing, which means that basically they'll just kick it down the road a couple weeks until the next councilwoman 
then Deborah Gray is is installed. But the parties involved in this deal aren't happy about how this is turning out. They've basically said time is money. This property has been in foreclosure for a year, and each passing day means that the amount they would have to pay to the lender grows because. Okay. Well, the that's, lender that's has ridicu- the lender that's has made it, statement number one. Well, yeah, ahead. but they've made it clear. The lender has made it clear that they won't take less than the full amount owed on the mortgage, and that includes the accrued interest and penalties. But the the organizers, the architects of this deal, also worried that that incoming mayor Justin Bibb won't make it a priority to you know the way Jackson has with everything else that he has to do during his transition. So they really want to strike while the iron is hot here. They had really hoped that this community meeting on Friday was going to sell Councilwoman. Gardner on the idea, but but no dice. But Zach Reed was there, and he's been working yeah, with Justin Bibb, and he said the Bibb <clears throat> incoming Bibb administration supports it. Exactly. Look, th- this is a lot of money. Twelve million dollars for a property that's not worth that much. And we're working on a story to show that over the years, a whole lot of public money has been invested in this thing, and it keeps failing. So, right. so clearly, all of the social engineering and all of the investment hasn't worked. And so, for those that are saying, "Hey, slow down." Let's think this through this time. This seems like it's reasonable. I don't understand. I mean, to, to, now that it's supposed to be pulled for Westbrook and company to be doing this thing today at four o'clock, I, what, why are they doing it? What are they afraid of? I mean, you can't tell me that a month of additional interest or six weeks of additional interest merits this forced idea when there are people in the community that want to talk about it they don't have a plan for it right yeah right the plan is to to buy it put it into a nonprofit hands and then spend three years figuring out what to do with it that 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 seems like it's a little backwards i mean do you really want to put more public money into it you realize that the county took a loan out on this thing 20 years ago taxpayers are still Mm -hmm, paying back mm -hmm. that and my bet is with this thing in foreclosure it probably hasn't been paying the taxes that were supposed to fund it we're going to find that out. Mm-hmm. Very odd. But I guess there is a chance, based on all this pressure, that that the councilwoman might change her mind and allow this to get voted on tonight. I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. We'll find out uh, today uh, in you know series of meetings and, and whatnot. And, and certainly by 7 p.m. tonight, we'll know for sure. Shame on them for, for not allowing this to have more time in the sunshine. This seems like they're afraid of something. And I'm just not buying the reasons that they're offering. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A very big thank you to everybody who has filled out the survey, letting us know what you think of this podcast and how you heard of it. We're still looking for more responses so that we can fashion this thing in a way that you like. So please, 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 if you get any kind of nutrition from the conversations we have each day, fill out the survey. It's at cleveland.com slash today survey. That's cleveland.com slash T-O-D-A-Y-S-U-R-V-E-Y. You'll help us make sure this is serving you exactly what you're looking for. When is the last time all three Cleveland hospital systems postponed elective surgery to deal with a pandemic surge in patients? Laura, this is kind of the reddest of red flags that we're in trouble here. This is kind of a jaw dropper. It hasn't happened since the beginning of the pandemic, March 2020, when DeWine mandated it. And now university hospitals, the Cleveland Clinic and Metro Systems, sorry, Metro Health System all announced a joint statement that they are close to reaching full capacity due to pandemic surge. 
and that more than 90% of the patients in COVID-19 in the ICU are non-vaccinated. So they are just overwhelmed. And in order to deal with this, the hospitals are shutting down elective surgeries. Not all of them, not at every hospital, but basically they want to make sure that they have the bed space for people who need to stay overnight at the hospitals. One, one administrator said the hospitals are busting at the seams and they expect this to keep continuing that they want to, they believe they're going to exceed the high mark of 1064 hospitalizations in this region set on December 15th 2020 by the end of the year remember how bad it was last December mm-hmm. and now we have a vaccine it's a year later and we're looking at the same overwhelming of the hospitals that's crazy except yeah we do have the vaccine but we also have half the half the state refusing to get it or a little less than half and we have the delta variant now the omicron variant which is just showing up but the delta variant is so much more contagious so a lot of people are getting sick and we still don't know what the omicron i've read lots of anecdotal stuff one said that it was a much milder version wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to wait 10 years for this virus to become the common cold and it just took a quantum leap forward and became something that oh it's not that bad we we don't have to worry we can go back to being human beings again it's uh it's also post thanksgiving you know right. i think we're going to see the numbers rocket up this week i bet we start to see a lot more school absences we had a school closed down in the area what was it euclid last week because they didn't have enough um teachers in or or something like that yeah i believe it was euclid and you're right and what's really ironic is last december when this was happening we were all like okay we're not having our christmas parties we're we're gonna you know shop sparingly we're gonna stay away from people this year i was at a hockey tournament for the last three days Unless they were mandated, we were at the Notre Dame campus and you have to wear a mask inside there, but nobody wore masks. I mean, so it's just kind of like, oh, people are shrugging their shoulders. It's not like we're all buckling down and going to figure out how to stop this. Well, there is evidence that if you're triple vaccinated, if you've gotten the booster, that you have a very high level of protection. And I think right. people that have that, some are saying, I'm not going to wear a mask. But you know, but you is mentioned... every person that I saw in the last three days have <laughs> No, boosted? no, no. I mean, look, and I, you know, I was out this weekend, I wore a mask. What, but you mentioned the holiday gatherings. You know, we, our newsroom did not have one last year because right. it was the height of it, but we're trying to have one later this week and it and it's you know there's a risk there but i think again it comes down to weighing it it's the mental health of seeing people and celebrating as you do at the end of the year versus the risk the low risk for triple vaccinated people of getting sick uh, I think you're going to see people doing it. We're going to be checking with companies this week to see what they're doing. Are can they I jump, having these gatherings? Can I jump yeah, in on the on the topic of, of elective procedures and things like that? You know, we, we wrote a story about this back when this happened the first time. But it sh- mm-hmm. we should just remind people, elective surgeries are not just cosmetic procedures. There are a lot Correct. of serious conditions that fall under that umbrella that people are having to postpone. And shame on everyone out there who is unvaccinated, who is contributing to this surge of, of patients with COVID in, in, in our hospitals and keeping others from, from the surgeries that they need. That is just awful, reprehensible behavior. Right. These are people that could have been on, you know, waiting to get in for a back surgery or a foot right. surgery. I mean, these are not you're right. Plastic Prolonging surgery. their their discomfort, their condition from from being and the uh, ameliorated. Of- exactly. Yeah. So it's not every every procedure. Metro Health 
um, has begun postponing. UH is rescheduling non-urgent surgeries at the main campus. And so, I mean, I think a lot of these elective procedures, if they're in and out at an outpatient center, are still happening. It's not like at the beginning of the pandemic when they were worried about PPE. But it's not just the beds. It's the shortage of workers as well. So there's not enough nurses to go around. So, I mean, yeah, you're right. They're they're kind of triaging. It's interesting. I read a story over the weekend that the idea that conservatives are opposing vaccine, it's it's a U.S. thing. In other countries that have a conservative party, they're not rejecting the vaccine. It's only in America that conservatives politicize this to the point where so many people won't get it. A unique American situation. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why does Cleveland's consent decree filing in federal court about issue 24 feel like such sour grapes? And why isn't the city either embracing the voter mandate for civilian control over police discipline or leaving the work to the next mayor and city council, which take office in less than four weeks? Lisa, it seemed like a venal filing that the law department went in and just was sour grapes. It feels like sour grapes. Well, I might have to throw a flag on this play, but we'll see. I mean, let's talk about it. But yeah, uh, the uh, the Cleveland law director, Barbara Langenry, made a filing to federal judge Simon Oliver, as she's required. They were required to file a motion within 30 days of election, but that motion did not include any ways. The, the consent decree and the charter amendment don't fit together like puzzle pieces. There are going to have to be things that are going to have to be resolved because of the way who, you know, merits the last word on discipline for police officers. So, um, yeah, I, they, she should have maybe had suggestions on how to, you know, blend the consent decree and the charter amendment issue 24. She did not. I don't know if it's her job, but Subo Chandra jumped right in and called this vindictive and said that she should have filed a motion, but asked for a stay until Justin Bibb can take office and then he can deal with it. He was a proponent of issue 24. He will be our new mayor. But um, a lot of it comes down to, like I said, who meets out discipline. I mean, uh, right now, uh, the discipline, the contract for the collective bargaining with the Fraternal Order of Police and the CPPA, the Policeman's Union, says that the discipline is handled by the chief, the police chief, or the director of public safety. But issue 24, the brand new 13-member community policing commission will have final say on the discipline. So these are conflicts that Langenry pointed out and do have to be worked out. I just don't know whose job it is. Maybe she should have filed a stay, you know, to allow Justin Bibb to weigh in. But I just feel we're in this weird lame duck limbo waiting for the old administration. And, and, you know, so I don't know if it's sour grapes. But the old administration was against this thing. They really hate this, the issue 24. So that that's so she instead of going in and saying, okay, here are the conflicts. Here's a way to fix them. She just said, here are the conflicts. Oh, well. And it would have made much more sense to go to Oliver, who's a very reasonable judge, and say, look, we have this deadline. We have to file something. But clearly this administration doesn't agree with this. The incoming administration does. We're asking for a 45-day delay on this so that, that somebody that wants to find solutions is leading the charge instead of us who think this is a disaster. That would have been the right thing to do. But but she she tried to navigate the middle, either go in with solutions or 
go in and leave the solutions to the future. Instead, they just, I mean, you know, we don't always agree with Sabode, but I think he has a point here. He also went a little further. He's like, this is an invitation to the unions to sue. Well, guess what, Sabode? They're going to sue anyway. It doesn't matter what Barbara (laughs) Langenry uh, files. Yeah. Anyway, it was a weird filing and. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I just, yeah, I think Subod is given to hyperbole, and I think he used it a little bit here. But yeah, it'll, <laughs> it, we are, we are, you know, in this, you know, we're waiting for the new mayor to come, and I think Justin Bibb, I think it'll happen. It's going to happen. But yeah, she did point out there are conflicts between, you know, the Charter Amendment and the consent decree, and those do have to be resolved. Is it Oliver's job? Is it her job? I really don't know. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Is there any realistic hope for the tiny village of Peninsula to survive? And why would the small population there think the survival of the village is more important than fortifying the Cuyahoga National Park that is visited by millions? Layla, we originally talked about this months ago, and we (laughs) assigned a reporter to look into it. But we've all been so busy, it took a while to actually put our spotlight on it. Bob Higgs came through with a look at this over the weekend. Good stuff. Yeah, we we did chew on this for a little bit. But so Peninsula, you know, they're a village with just 600 people and they're facing what you could call an existential crisis. And at the heart of that is the National Park, this wonderful asset that is really what puts Peninsula on the map to most people. If you've been to Peninsula at all, if you've eaten at any of the restaurants or spent any time there, it's probably because you were availing yourself of the National Park. And a big portion of it covers, you know, more than half the village. But recently, the park, or or more specifically, the Conservancy for Cuyahoga Valley National Park, acquired a 207-acre golf course in the village. And while park officials say that acquisition is key to their overall plan to increase park access to the public and, and boost habitat restoration, the deal infuriated the village and the local school district. And that's because currently the entire tax burden is carried by just 240 households and 15 small to medium businesses, and the park is tax-exempt. So the village had hoped this golf course would land in the hands of a developer who could turn it into some kind of commercial or residential venture that produces tax dollars for the village so that they could afford some of the infrastructural improvements they desperately need, like a water system or a sewer system. They can't afford those costs on their own. And that golf course was 14% of the village's taxable property. So, you know, also village officials believe that 50 years ago, the park had promised not to acquire more land in the village for this exact reason. And the park says they have no record of that agreement. And if it happened, it certainly was never formalized. So basically, the village officials are wondering what's going to happen to the village. Will, will families start to depart because they'll eventually see their taxes rise? Or will they will the village vote to, to basically dissolve altogether and become a part of nearby Boston Township? It's a great story about how the existential needs of this village are in direct opposition to the needs of the National Park, which most of us just generally agree is one of the crown jewels of the region. It's a really good story by Bob. Yeah, I, I mean, you talk about the greater good. That, that's the greater good. We should point out 50 years ago it wasn't a national park. It was the Cuyahoga Valley National Recreation Area. It right, became a right. national park, I don't know, 20 years ago. 
uh, so things change. I, I th- this is for me more evidence of the balkanization of Ohio. All of these tiny little things exist, all with their little fiefdoms. I mean, they're trucking in water there yeah. every day to fill their cisterns because they don't have right. a water well. It's, it's like that, you know, if we didn't have all of these zillions of little governments, we'd probably be a lot more efficient. But I think, you know, there. what is it? Millions of people visit that park in a year. Mm-hmm, it's the seventh mm-hmm. most visited park in the country, mostly because it's so huge. You got to put that ahead of the needs of a village of 248 people. It's just right. the, the, there is a limited amount of land that this park can grow into and and develop for its it, the the greater good. So I I don't think a whole lot of people are feeling sympathy. I think oh, I do. <laughs> I totally feel sympathy for Peninsula. Like I think that you know I I get what they're saying that they they want to exist and I don't think it's like they're not, it's not a bad town. It's not like you're like they've mismanaged money or something. They're just in a really bad spot. And you're right, Layla. Like the tourism is there because of the national park and the, you know, the ski hills are not that far away, but you know, I get people that want to keep their small town the way it is. And, and I think there needs to be some kind of just collaboration between it because no, I I don't think I would rather have a golf course developed. I I want the national park to get bigger, but maybe there is something about a, a user fee or, or something that we could come up with to help this village that we want. I mean, if you go to the national park you and you've been to peninsula with its bike paths and and the century cycles there and the restaurants like you that's one of the nice things about going to the national park is that place mm-hmm. but it's a neighborhood you're you're talking about a municipal boundary who cares it's that neighborhood isn't going away and if they were part of boston township or something bigger that would still be there as the neighborhood that exists the buildings aren't going away the businesses aren't going away it's it's you're you're talking about the incorporation who cares well i don't know if boston township wants to take it on then i mean that's the other issue right like if you don't have have much of a tax base at all how are you going to keep up the, the policing and all of that I don't think you have a choice. If they yeah. disband, they're automatically part of the township, right? Oh, I they don't would think that's so. a good question, right, right? We don't have unincorporated areas, do we? Where where the county is in charge? Well, I mean, that's yeah, unincorporated is the township, right? They yeah. they have to I think they have to take you and then the county would if they didn't have their own police force, the county sheriff's office would probably have to step in. I, I wish we had a giant eraser and we could just start erasing all these <laughs> municipal boundaries. And have... I think there are worse <laughs> ones than Peninsula, though. Well, there's lots of bad ones, but this is one where why should the greater greater community that enjoys the park subsidize this tiny village? Go ahead, Lisa. I was just going to say, I think that the water and sewer problem, which I had no idea until I read Bob Higgs's article yesterday, that they don't they have to truck their water. That's an insurmountable problem. And I'm thinking being surrounded by a national park would hinder their ability to develop water and sewer systems. So that's an untenable position in my, I mean, well, I, I, I love Peninsula. I mean, I eat at Fisher's Tavern all the time. I go to Zalay farmers market but yeah i just don't know how they can survive the the water and the sewer thing is interesting because a lot of townships don't have water and sewer you know where i grew up in bath township we have um a septic tank and a well and so that's not that weird for no. but but it's it is obviously going to hamper you from getting commercial properties mm-hmm. okay you're listening to Today in Ohio. We're going to miss talking about half our topics. I'm going to skip to one that 
is current for today. Is Cleveland about to squander $2 million on a troubled health center, or is this a good use of the city's pandemic rescue money? Layla, this decision is coming today, right? Yes, yes. We Stimulus Watch reporter Robin Goyce brought us a story, and I got to tell you, this is such a questionable use of American Rescue Plan dollars. Cleveland City Council today could pass legislation to give $2 million to NEON, the Northeast Ohio Neighborhood Health Services. They provide health care services to some of the poorest neighborhoods in Cleveland, and they've been operating in the city for a long time. However, their tax filings show that they have been in some dire financial straits that have nothing to do with the hardships of the pandemic. And despite those financial troubles, they're go- they gave their CEO, Willie Austin, a $100,000 raise, bringing his salary to 500000 What makes Austin's raise even more outrageous is that it came during a time when Neon was serving fewer and fewer patients every year and was operating nearly a million dollars in the red. And some of Neon's financial troubles are connected to a payout of more than $1.3 million as a result of this wrongful termination lawsuit. That stems from corruption related to the new Eastside Market project, which Neon was the developer for. The employee who was wrongfully terminated in that case had, had raised concerns about a financial audit that showed questionable activity by a Neon board member who was the head of the consulting firm hired to manage the market project. And that board member later was indicted and accused of embezzlement. 855000 from the project. So, you know, meanwhile, Neon was supposed to open a health clinic or create a demonstration kitchen for nutritious cooking classes at the new East Side Market, and it has yet to make good on those promises. And, and that's despite getting the sweet deal on the property and a whole bunch of financial assistance from the city and county and state. So it's just stunning that some council members, specifically outgoing Councilman Bashir Jones, who would fight so hard for Neon to get this piece of the stimulus funds. And Bashir, his days are literally numbered on city council. He's going to be leaving office in a matter of weeks here. So... So are they going to do it? Are they going to I don't know. We, we, we hope to shine a light on it in time for that, and we have. So we'll see what kind of discussion at the committee table uh, comes out today and whether or not they end up stamping it for approval. We'll see. It, is this one of these deals where if the ward councilman wants it, you know, those are fiefdoms, and they tre- the, the council members treat each other like kings of their wards instead of as as a city council looking out for the needs of the city. So if Bashir Jones wants it, does he just get it? I don't know. I mean, we saw with Marion Anita Gardner, her, her opinion mattered, even though her days are also numbered on council. But in this case, I don't know. There seems to be enough controversy around this that maybe council members would, would give, you know, take take a moment to to think it out before just agreeing with Bashir Jones. I mean, even Bashir Jones has acknowledged that there is some controversy. He has kind of said, like, why is it that some businesses can do bad things and, and they can recover from it, but others, we don't let them, uh, you know, start anew. Well, and it's but like, oh, such but, a yeah, but that's it. But that is a good point. We were talking about a neighborhood that doesn't have a lot of health services available. So is there a way to provide this money while putting in some guidelines to make sure that this serves the community. This is an underserved community. We have implicit racism when people from this community go to regular health providers. So there is a reason to do this. This wasn't created out out of nothing. It was created because there's a need. Is there any talk about 
the city trying to help this organization thrive, be successful, and be responsible. Not, I, I am not unaware of that discussion, but the, it would need to happen because obviously, how are you operating in the red while also serving fewer clients? Those two things should not. There is some mismanagement going on. Their hand, the board is giving. I mean, a hundred thousand dollar raise to a to a CEO who's already who was already getting paid four hundred thousand dollars during a time of complete financial calamity. I, I just how can how can the city give this coveted you know ARPA money to an organization that has a proven track record of failure at this moment in time? They at least need to force a change in leadership at this at this nonprofit. It seems right. Okay. Got to move on. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We're out of time. We'll save some conversations for tomorrow. I love when we have a healthy debate like we had today. Good stuff. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.